0: Hello and welcome to the Superhero by Design podcast, the show where we interview real life superheroes. My name is Ace Haggerty and I will be your host. My next guest is, you guessed it, a real life superhero. He has followed his mission literally to the ends of the earth, training and fighting the evils of the world, while at the same time, empowering local communities to fight for their children and loved ones. He is a man amongst men and a true superhero. He's also a very good-looking and capable man. So men, keep your wives away, and mothers, keep your daughters at bay. I'm of course talking about the one, the only, Adam the Oak Parker. Adam, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, brother. Wow. What an absolute epic intro. <laughs> I'm blushing and thankful and honored and humbled all at the same time. Well, uh, thank you. good to be here.
0: Hey, man, I only speak facts, so everything I just said was true. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, before we begin, uh, there's two organizations that I want to mention real quickly that you work for. One is Operation Rescue Children. And that's a nonprofit that arms rescuers with the tactical training they need to enter the darkest corners of the world, take down human traffickers and set captives free. You can find more information or you can donate at com, And then Something we're going to get into later in the podcast is a company that, Adam, it sounds like you are going to start to join. It's called The Story Company, whose goal is shifting the worldview of South Asia through effective, beautiful storytelling and media. You can find more information about them at storycompany.com. All right. Well, let's, let's jump into it. Before we get into who you are and why you moved your family to the other side of the world to fight people, whose lives are supported by trafficking children as sex slaves, I want to ask you this very important question. All right? Yes, sir. How are you doing, man?
1: How are you doing? Like, <laughs> really, how are you doing? Hmm. That's a good question. And over the last five years, that has gone up and down, but for the most part, was on a downward trend until recently. Um, I don't know. I, I came over probably like, many folks who moved to other foreign countries with a lot of grand ideas and a lot of assumptions about how I could fix the problems. Right. And then I arrived and reality, I ran into it. And I realized that maybe I'm not as big or important as I thought I was. And the reality on the ground was much more complicated than I had originally assumed. And I began to struggle and it, and then COVID hit, you know, and we're all locked in, in a in a developing South Asian country where people couldn't leave their houses for two to three months at a time. And and it got dark. It got hard. But by God's grace, um, we were able to be refreshed recently. We got to go back to the States and do some training with you, meet up with some of our supporting communities. And we're on the upswing again. We've got fresh perspective. We're on mission. And uh, we're, we're excited about what God's doing here.
0: That's awesome, man. That's really good to hear. And I'm I'm happy to hear that you're back on the up and up. i uh, I just posted something yesterday about how to get yourself out of a funk and mm. um you know it's that's kind of how life is, right? We've got ups, we've got downs, and um you know the highs are great, and the highs are temporary, just like the lows are temporary. and um yeah, I'm sure running into that that brick wall, so to speak, when you first moved mm. out there was was a huge uh, obstacle to overcome, but I'm glad to hear. It sounds like you're you're doing well. You look fantastic. I don't think I've ever seen your hair combed before. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, it's it's really good to hear that you're doing well. And we're going to jump into all of this. Um, but before we get to that, let's um, let's rewind here a little bit. Tell me, sure, where were you born and raised?
1: Yeah, I was born and raised in Northeast Indiana, just the Midwest, kind of breadbasket, heartland, um, full of good folks and, and people just working hard, trying to earn a living. And what's interesting, you I, mean, I, I guess I'm jumping ahead again a little bit. Um, I run into so many hoosiers in Asia. I mean, in really? Africa and Asia, all over the, the place. And we always joke. I mean, we they're everywhere. It's gotta be like fifty percent of the Americans I meet are from Indiana. And it's not like it's a huge state. And we joke, either Indiana is so dull and boring that people have to move to the developing world to get some experience, or it just raises good people. So I like to believe it's more of the latter than the former. But yeah, born and raised in Indiana and, and thankful for it.
0: Well, that's awesome. Yeah, that's crazy that you mentioned that my mom uh, was born and raised in Geary, Indiana. and yeah, uh, not too far from me. Yeah, yeah. and uh, she. Obviously left and moved to California. That's where she met my dad. But um, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Indiana and the Midwest in general, just because uh, it seems like everybody I meet from that part of the world, that part of the U.S., um, they're just down to earth, you know, salt of the earth, so to speak, people Mm -hmm. um, with good, good morals, good value, good work ethic. Uh, Food Mm -hmm. is a little bland, but you know what? It it only takes a few spices to change that. So.
1: Yeah, man. Well, after you had rice for three meals a day for the last five years, Indiana food looks pretty awesome. <laughs> oh,
0: that's funny, man. That's funny. So cool. So born, raised in Indiana, I'm assuming you went to high school mm-hmm. out there and everything, um, but you're, yeah. you're obviously not in Indiana anymore. Um, so, what did you do or when did you move out of Indiana? And, and tell us a little bit of uh, what got you out and, and what
1: you did from there. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. After graduating from high school up in Northeast Indiana, Carroll High School in a town called Fort Wayne, um, pursued higher education, wanted to go to a Christian university at that time, 2005. There weren't a lot offering the field of study I was pursuing, which was criminal justice. And I wanted to pursue criminal justice from a young age. I remember getting beat up by bullies all the time because I was trying to stand up and defend the guy a little bit smaller than me from getting picked on didn't work out too often. Uh, and sometimes even I was the perpetrator because I was a bit self-righteous, but I wanted I wanted to pursue the justice field. And I found a school in, called Harding University in central Arkansas that offered it, Christian University. And so I went there and from 2005 to 2009, got a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and and began pursuing a, a professional career in law enforcement. It's also where I met my wife, Lori, who's a a NICU nurse. And after graduating from Harding in 2009 yeah 2009 we we moved to Nashville Tennessee got a job in the the local police department there and and it got to work
0: that's awesome man so it sounds like from a very early age you just had this this feeling this i don't i wouldn't call it intuition but essentially you had this sense of justice this sense of mm-hmm. right and wrong wanting to you know essentially uh protect the innocent and go after the perpetrator.
1: Yeah, I I did. And I don't, I'm not entirely sure where that came from. My dad was an entrepreneur, a businessman. Um, My mom was a stay at home mom. You know, I've got some military service in my background and in a couple generations, you know, above me, but it was something innate. And we often here like to think about these three Philosophical pillars of Christianity, which are truth, goodness, and beauty; these historical underpinnings of our faith, and that goodness pillar aspect, that was something that really drew me from an early age. Um, at times, I grew frustrated by not seeing the church engage in goodness—a mm-hmm. um, lot of talk but not much action—and that that always didn't it didn't sit well with me. And I, I felt a burning desire to get out there and and do my best to make the world a better place.
0: No, that's awesome. Probably yeah. Like Marvel. yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Did you enjoy watching like films and things like that of, uh, I don't know whether, you know, I'm I'm a big superhero comic guy. So I, I watched a lot of that. But, you know, did you find media outlets and things like that kind of instilling certain values in you? Or was it mm-hmm. more just, uh, hey, I'm just going to do... Live in the real world and and push through that way, or
1: no, it wasn't actually so much of the real world. The real world was pretty dry and dull, mm-hmm. and I but I had this desire to engage in the heroicness of what I'd argue now was authentic masculinity and even Christian faith. And I started pursuing uh, media, really things like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Right, I remember when those movies came out and it just oh, I mean, it blew my world <laughs> wide open. I was so I mean, Aragorn was like. My hero. Yeah. Uh, and, and then reading John Eldridge's books, because you guys have heard of that author, a book called Wild at Heart, um, which just cracked me open. It was like he wrote that book from the inside of me. Like he knew me mm-hmm. so well. And that, that idea of, you know, every man needs a, a battle to fight a beauty, to love and an adventure to follow or engage in. And that just resonated deeply. Um, And so I decided, you know, I mentioned the the bachelor's degree in criminal justice. And initially, I was pursuing a job with the Secret Service, um, because it was, it was kind of cool. They wore the suits, they got to, I don't know, do cool looking stuff. And I was probably as a young man, equally motivated by the goodness, as I was by the relative prestige, right, or Mm -hmm. idea that the public would, you know, endow upon me, because I wanted the looks of people. And God really convicted me of that And towards the second half of my college career, that that wasn't really out of the heart of service. That wasn't really to make the world a better place. Because my understanding was pretty shallow at that time. I wanted cool training, do some cool stuff. Yeah. And the Secret Service, you know, now that I've matured and understand what they actually do, they do vital work especially in the area of child exploitation, on, OSEC work, online sexual exploitation of children. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that at the time though. I just thought I got to wear a cool suit and kick some tail. Yeah. Um, but the Lord convicted me of that. And I ended up uh, pursuing local policing uh, because it was very, it was intimately tied to the daily complexities and struggles of real people and to step down into the ditch with them and, and not just offer safety and refuge for victims of domestic violence and sexual abuse and, even petty crimes up to major crimes. But, but the suspects and perpetrators themselves who were at the end of the rope and needed to be offered some some kind of hope.
0: Yeah, yeah. What, what Was there a point in time, you, you had mentioned that, uh, you know, Tony Robbins talks about different human needs and one of those human needs is, you know, the need of significance. And it sounds mm-hmm. like when you were younger, you were kind of pushing towards, you know, you wanted to be like the men in black, right? You wanted the cool suit. And, um, you wanted to feel significance, like kind of like, yeah. Hey, it, it was like inward thinking, like, Hey, look at me type thing. But obviously you recognize that at a pretty early age, um, and through, uh, your policing in Nashville, it sounds like you really got to look at yourself more outward or look outward rather than inward. So was there a specific moment in time where it was like a, a flip of a switch Or is it something that kind of progressed over time? Because it sounds like it happened pretty early in your, in your life that you were able to make that, that change. So I just want to know, like, um, is there, is there anything to it like, uh, an event or did it just happen?
1: Hmm. I, I remember a specific moment being in high school and sitting at the table and I was, I was reading through, um, I think maybe the book of Matthew, right? One of the gospels my dad and I, and on the news popped up uh, an ethnic genocide going on in Rwanda, I believe at the time.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And it just shattered me. What in the world is going on? You know, at that point, my world existed of a couple cornfields, a relatively nice high school without much problems and a comfortable life, right? I mean, I was born on third base. And then I saw that and my worldview just cracked open a little bit. And I was acutely struck with the suffering of these people. And I was reading these words of Jesus, right? And, and how his followers were called to love the world and engage with the suffering and, and make the world a better place uh, and, and pointing to him. But then I'd go to church on Sunday while this suffering was going on. I would see a bunch of people with, you know, white hair sitting in pews singing a few songs, falling asleep and going out and getting lunch afterwards. And that was the existence, right? Yeah. Of like, that was the pinnacle of my faith. And I was surely there's more than this. I mean, this isn't how these guys, these 12 guys who were following Jesus were behaving. Right. Why are we doing anything different? And at that point, it really, that's when it really settled in that, um, that worldview shift from compl- complacency, I guess, to a desire to engage it actively.
0: That's awesome, man. You know, I had a kind of similar experience. Um, it it wasn't till many years later, but when I was doing research and I was writing my book, uh, one thing that I talk about in it is a person's mission. And a superhero mm-hmm. has their mission, um, and the, the bigger, the stronger the mission, the the better, the more powerful, the more impact you can have on the world. And so I was just going back through my life and. That it wasn't an event on TV, but I remember I watched this movie uh called The Elephant Man. And I don't know if anybody listening has ever seen it or even heard of that movie. It's a little bit older of a movie, but I'll make this really short. But in that movie, there was a guy who was disfigured. He looked they called him Elephant Man because he was he looked almost like an elephant as a person, just super disfigured, hunchback the whole thing. And he was just made fun of and ridiculed his whole life. He was thrown into, uh, I believe a circus as like a freak show. And I just remember I couldn't make it through the movie cause I just started tearing up and crying. And I felt so much pain uh, and empathy for this guy. And I look back at that and I was like, man, I just, I want people to feel loved. I want people to feel appreciated. I want people to know that they have a reason that they were here or that they, you know, that they're on this planet, everybody has something to give and something to share with the world. And so that's kind of how I found my mission was just like Mm -hmm. looking back on my life. And so when you tell me your story of you, you know, seeing all this genocide on TV stuff that's happening in the world, and then you turn around in your community, you know, they're kind of in their, their own little bubble where they um, are just going about their day lunch is more important than what's happening on the other side of the world. And so I really appreciate you sharing that because I feel like there's these little tidbits that everybody has, these little experiences, uh, whether they realize it or not, sounds like you realized it pretty quickly. It took me a lot longer. But if we look back on our lives, we can find these little moments, these little clues that kind of tell us what our mission is. And if we start Mm -hmm. reflecting on that, that just can give us drive and purpose because now we know more confidently who we are. We're clearer on who we are and what we want to do and how we want to move forward in life. So I think, uh, having an experience like that is, is just profound. And I I just applaud that, that you were able to recognize that right away and take the actions needed to Mm -hmm. direct your life in that sort of, that sort of way. I was going to ask you a question of like, why the heck would you move from Nashville, Tennessee? And hey, I live in Nashville now too. And I've, I love it here. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you go from Nashville to Nepal? But you just explained it right there. I don't even need to ask that right. question. Mm-hmm. Like your love, your compassion for people and wanting to um, really change the world for good is, is remarkable.
1: Mm. Well, I, I appreciate that, brother. And, and really, all glory to God, because without this worldview, I don't think I would have the foundational motivation to engage in it. I don't think I'd have the hope that's tied with that worldview belief that it's going to actually matter in the end. Um, and we got a lot of pushback when we left Nashville. You know, our three kids were born and raised there and and we loved it in Nashville. I mean, what a great place to to launch our family. Mm-hmm. And it seemed a little bit crazy, especially when our neighbor, um, wasn't, we had a Nepali couple that had moved over and they were our neighbors in Nashville and they truly couldn't grasp it. Like why in the world are you guys going to Nepal? I mean, we got here and and that doesn't make any sense to us. We're, We're just leaving
0: that mess. Like, why are you running into the, like, they got out of the burning house. Why are you running, running into it?
1: Yeah. And and it really, it is foolishness in the eyes of the world. But, and, and and I don't also want to negate the fact that there is genuine suffering that's going on in our country back home. I mean, there's a lot of it in, in every aspect. Um, it's just, one of the differences is it's, it's more acute at times. It's more widely spread and acute in countries like Nepal and other developing nations, especially, you know, when the average income earning for a family is $109 a month. And that's that's pretty good for many folks. And you've got um, a a worldview that doesn't value the same things that we value back home. So systems haven't been established or in place for very long at all. If they even exist to help from the NGO space all the way up to the government entities, um, help those who are suffering. They're just, there's very little opportunity or resource to get out of it. And we felt like God could use us and leverage our gifts uh, more, more powerfully in a place like that. Actually, I heard an analogy once and, and oh, I want to be careful how I draw this, this parallel. I'm not saying that, well, I'll give you the analogy and you'll get what I'm saying. Um, you know, you take the tiniest flake of a diamond. If you're going to go buy it for like you know, your fiance, you're going to get engaged, you don't have a bunch of money and, and then they pull out this black velvet cloth. And they put this tiny little sliver of a diamond on it. And, and all of a sudden that thing just radiates and glows, right? It looks like the most beautiful thing in the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but that little silver of diamond, just, it it shines so much brighter in the pitch black background of that felt, of that velvet. And I think just, just a little, the littlest, the thimble spoonful of light or goodness that we can pour into the most acutely suffering communities in the world. They have an opportunity to, to make a big difference. At least that's our hope.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome, man. And and that's a that's a great analogy because uh I remember when I was buying buying that ring. Um yeah, that, mm-hmm. that thing by itself doesn't stand out, but put it on that that black darkness behind it. Man, that thing you can't wait to get your credit card out after that. So <laughs>
1: that's right.
0: Um that's awesome, man. Well, how old were your kids, by the way, when you moved to Nepal originally?
1: Ooh, I guess my youngest would have been nine months old at the time. Okay. So I would have had a nine month old, a just two year old and a four year old, I think.
0: Okay. And and your wife was like, let me pack the bags. Yeah, let's go, um, right?
1: Thank God for my wife. I mean, my wife had spent some time in South America. She'd spent some time in Africa, but she'd never been to Asia. Um, and she agreed to move our whole family over there. And, and just uh, what a testament to the heart of gold my wife is so faithful and she loves me so much and we're so in this together Mm -hmm. Uh, and really that's probably one of the strongest things about our marriage was that we had something we were striving to together outside of ourselves you know our world wasn't just making a good dinner and keeping the kids healthy so we can send them off to school it was how do we as a family engage with the suffering and use our gifts as a nurse or as a law enforcement guy um, to help those who really need it. And that drew us together as a family and as a couple and, and helped us persevere through a lot of challenging situations during that shift and leaving our jobs and, and ending up over here.
0: Yeah, yeah. Was was there a time... Because obviously you said you hit a brick wall when you moved there. Is there an experience that you've had since you've been there that kind of tells you, hey, this this was the right choice? Like even maybe coming back to the U.S., I know you guys have been back a couple times, um, not too often, but like, is there a, any, any moment or anything over there or when you came back here that you were like, yeah, yeah, no, this, this is the right place for us.
1: Well, there, there were a few examples I can give for that. Uh, one in a larger scale is is just seeing the impact of the few wins we've been able to have. You see those lives that are changed that are, that are restored, and then you think of the generational impact that it has on you know whether it's this group of seven girls or that group of three boys who now have an opportunity for an education to get married to raise children who have hope as opposed to being in the fifth cycle of bonded servitude right or or um, sexual exploitation. So when I think about that multiplying out, I'm encouraged and I see their lives improving. Uh, when I and another one, and this is this one's a bit interesting because I come from a conservative Christian background. Like it wasn't, when I say conservative, I mean that in the, in the church setting, it wasn't very experiential, right? We just kind of like, a, uh, just read the Bible, kind of go sing some songs and live a good life. And, and we didn't have much of the experience side of it, but I remember we were in a pretty dark spot here because success was hard to come by and all of our ideas, we were seeing how naive they were at the time and it felt like failure after failure. And it was, it's like living in a sandpaper box, like all of your edges and all of the facade gets scraped off here and you just get raw and you get very real, real. And I remember that I was just done. I was tapped out and I was going to leave the anti-trafficking space. And we were going to make the announcement, my wife and I, the next day to the organization we were working with, we just couldn't do it anymore. And that night, my wife woke up at two o'clock in the morning and she kind of woke me up and, you know, I'm in a deep slumber. I'm like, what's going on? She's like, hey, she's like, I feel like just pray for me. I don't know what's going on. I feel like something heavy is going on. And I'm like, OK, you know, I kind of mumble a prayer and go back to sleep. And, and that next morning I wake up and I'm like, hey, what happened in the middle of the night? She's like, well, I had this really intense dream that our oldest daughter, Savannah, she was she was taken by a group of men and she was being sold in a brothel in India. And it was so vivid and raw. It just broke me. The darkness was heavy. She's like, I just felt it was so real. I was like, well, that's weird. You don't really dream like that. She's a really stable right. woman. Like does nothing get her flustered. Right. And then I roll over in bed. And I've got a WhatsApp message. Everyone uses WhatsApp over here in Asia. Yep. I've got a WhatsApp message from one of my uh, coworkers, a Nepali uh, researcher investigator we worked with. He's like, he's like, Hey brother, I need to come over to your house tonight for dinner. I'm like, okay, well, that's very not culturally appropriate, right? People here are very passive. They're not direct. And so I knew something was up. I'm like, okay, yeah, come on over for dinner. So they come on over. And normally in this culture, when you sit down with people, it, this, they say the small talk is the big talk here. Everyone spends hours over tea talking about the weather, talking about the shape of the doorknob. I mean, anything but the main topic. Mm-hmm. And then right actually when people are getting up to leave, <laughs> That's when they bring up the thing they wanted to talk about. Right. So as soon as his family comes in, they sit on the couch. We're getting ready to serve them tea to begin this cultural dance. He looks at me in a very direct way. All of this is not appropriate. And he goes, brother, tell me, are you leaving the anti-trafficking work? Oh, I'm like, well, wow. Um, wow. why would you ask that? We've not told anybody that. And he goes, I need to know. I'm like, "No, hey, man, tell me why. He's like, last night at two o'clock, I had a dream that you were leaving this work. And I woke up my wife and we have not slept and we prayed all night about this because this cannot happen. And I was really struck by that because that's not how the world works in my mind. At least it wasn't up to that point. And it was kind of a a regrounding moment to say, hey, yeah, this sucks. It's hard. Success is really difficult to come by. Um, You thought you had the solutions. You don't. But for some reason, there's a need here. And so keep pressing into it. And we did, and thank God we did, because the end result was now sustainable teams that wouldn't exist. Now are multiple families or young girls or boys who wouldn't still be in types of uh slavery that aren't. So yeah, thank God we stuck with it.
0: No, that's that's an incredible story. Like it's it's crazy how like all these pieces seem to come together. Like we don't know the bigger plan of what's going on. We Mm -hmm. don't understand the good, the bad that's happening to us. But if we instead, you know, a lot of people tend to, I I feel like a lot of people, myself included, tend to say, you know, like, why is this happening to me? And you hear, you know, you'll hear the phrase, well, it's happening for you, not to you. And I Mm -hmm. know that's tried, it's overused, but it's so powerful. Like once you, start changing shifting your mindset and thinking okay my wife like in your your situation not only did my wife have a very strange unusual dream but these people in the community that that i you didn't even realize in a certain capacity you impacted so profoundly um mm-hmm. had a dream the same night too it's like it's it's god smack it's like it it couldn't be a coincidence yeah. and Good term, yeah. and we we tend to be stuck in our own reality, our own world. And there's just so many moving parts that are going on around us that we're not even aware of. And just, I guess that's where faith comes in. That's where trusting, um, like, like with training and everything and we'll, we'll get into training here in a minute, but like train, you know, trust your training. They say, trust that the process is going to do what it's going to do and just have faith that it's going to work. So it's incredible that, at a point when you guys were ready to essentially, I wouldn't say give up, but move on to something different, yep. um, something pulled you right back in and pulled you in immediately. And it's amazing to hear that because of that, all these good things seemingly happened since then.
1: Yeah. Praise God. That's right. Yeah. You uh, smack was really the word there. That was, that's pretty accurate.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, Hey, um, let me, uh, jump real back, uh, right back into the two organizations. And we'll talk about these organizations here in a little bit as well. But sure. um, currently, Adam is working for Operation Rescue Children. Uh, you can find more information, you can donate online at operationrescuechildren.com. And essentially, ORC, uh, arms rescuers with the tactical training that they need to take down human trafficking and set these uh, captives free. Uh, Adam also is working for a company called The Story Company, whose goal is to shift the worldview of people in Nepal and other parts of Southeast Asia through effective, beautiful storytelling and media. Now, a big part of a superhero is their identity. Now, I I can see you on the screen. You're not wearing spandex. You don't have a mask on or anything like that. But a big part of, of what you do is you're dealing with some pretty low, low life people. You know, these people that are, mm-hmm. that survive basically by exploiting others and doing these just atrocious, horrible things to children, women, um, tearing apart these communities, tearing families apart. Um, as far as, who you need to be because you also are a foreigner in a foreign country mm-hmm. and so as far as like your identity goes is there a certain way that you dress is there a certain demeanor that you have to have like can you explain a little bit about how uh you present yourself both physically and mentally uh when you work
1: day in and day out no yeah, that's a deep question it's one that all of us expats, we call ourselves, or foreigners living in other countries, uh, have to deal with on a daily basis. We're constantly grappling with effectiveness. What? How do we define effectiveness? What is? What role does long-term sustainability play in effectiveness? And integrity as well. How do we stay in country and, and honor the laws of this land, just as we want someone to honor the laws of our own land uh, in America? And we've gone back and forth in that. And... When I first came in, I had probably more of a vigilante perspective, honestly, Mm -hmm. Um, kind kind of like put on the cape, go kick down some doors and get some girls out. And I I think there can be a place for that. But what I learned over the last five years is that the heart of that I respect and I appreciate, but the outcome I've seen has often been more negative than positive. Uh, it's actually, I'll tell you a story about an org that was, that was doing that. We met them and these were some, some former and some formers really high level operators. I'll, I'll put it that way. And I got to come to America and train with these guys for a while. And it, it's, uh, I'm not going to mention the name of this org. And they came over here and they've been coming here for years to this country, this country in Nepal doing work. And they were doing that vigilante style, right? Coming with a cover story, real tactical um, and get out all over the country in a van and kick, literally kick down doors, for, whether it was brick kilns to assume the brothels and get kicked out. And it sounded really good. Yeah. And I remember watching their, their fundraising. And I'm like, wow, this looks legit. But then I learned that maybe all the T's hadn't been crossed and I's hadn't been dotted. And while it sounded good on the surface, underlined something, something felt a little bit off. And so I'm like, hey, guys, you know what? Let's The next time you do one of these, these circuits in Nepal, Let me send some, some Nepali trained counselors from our team with you who know how to do forensic interviewing or cognitive interviewing, who understand how to speak to minors who have been experienced complex trauma and who actually speak the language and let's figure out what's going on. And so we sent our team, uh, on the aftercare side behind this team that had got these kids out and location after location, after location, I think there was a total of supposedly around 50 kids that had been rescued. We found out that in fact, None of those kids had legitimately been exploited. They all had parents. They all go to school. They were well educated, but their parents had dropped them off at brick kilns in the morning and told them to play in the mud, because the Americans were going to come and rescue them. And then this organization would send money each year to a local contact to distribute it to these families. And so we had unintentionally, with our with good intentions, created an economy of fake exploitation because it was funding schooling and education. And so as I began to watch this, I realized how easy it is for us from the West to be taken advantage of Mm -hmm. and to create problems that didn't previously exist out of our good intentions. And it caused me to step back and really focus on, okay, there is a problem but how can I actually address the problem in a sustainable way that 50 years from now means it's going to be better than it is today instead of doing something that might just get me kicked out next week that, and might not even be actually helping the child I'm wanting to help. And so that's something we, we have to deal with all the time. And so in a long roundabout way, I'll, to answer your question, um, <laughs> what we do now is I, I work with two companies. In a consultant role, and my job is with a former background in law enforcement to train up um, Nepalis mm-hmm. who, from in the NGO, NGO, a non-government space, who then themselves go and collaborate with prosecutors in the Nepali government prosecutor's office, with the anti-human trafficking bureau, with the cyber crimes bureau, with local and district level police, and say, hey, guys, this is what we've learned. And and I take what I've learned from groups like Operation Rescue Children, and apply it to this group, who then gives it you know in a in a culturally appropriately packaged way to the relevant authorities, and then we support them in identifying cases of exploitation that are authentic. Right? We do the same thing we would do in a police department in America, where we're we're following leads, we're evaluating evidence, we're taking tips from informants and putting them through a matrix to determine the veracity of them and the actionability of them. And it's much less sexy for lack of a better term. Um, But it's much more sustainable and effective and and, and it's slower too. But I found that to be the the best way to go about it.
0: You said earlier in the podcast about the difference between like movies and real life, real life is a lot more bland or it can be. And it it sounds like that just, you know, that's happening there as well but at the same time the training that you had as a police officer and i'm mm-hmm. assuming certain education that you got during college you're able to apply it in a place where there's no set playbook for stuff like this so you're mm-hmm. you're taking your expertise you're taking your knowledge and you're literally creating your own protocols your own process and your own way of handling these kinds of situations in a responsible, sustainable way that respects their culture instead of taking, I don't know, the, uh, uh, Rambo approach. I guess Rambo is a little bit dated of a movie. Um, no, triple X is triple X a good one or, uh, <laughs> uh, James Bond, I guess. Yeah. Uh, he's they're, they're right. still coming out with Bond movies. So, um, yeah, you're, you're, it's not so much the Bond approach cause that essentially is going to, uh, create a lot of uh, chaos and um, isn't going to be very effective, especially in the long run.
1: Yeah. And I, but you know what? I didn't think that at first and I tried it. And I remember you know, walking into... Uh, let me speak about this. I was in another country in South Asia. And this place is uh, one of the largest red light areas in Asia. And I was walking through, um, I think in this particular location, there are 15,000 sex slaves in a single square block. And it's it's entirely rogue. I mean, there's no law enforcement authority at present at all. It's all thugs and pimps and brothel owners. And I didn't, I had that vigilante idea. I'm like, I'm gonna go and solve the problem, you know? Mm-hmm. But I wasn't doing my due diligence. I wasn't following my training. And I should have realized that, hey, I'm the only white guy in this entire area of town. Yeah. Right. And so this is a red light area that's that's specifically appealing to local clientele. So I stand out. And then I notice I'm getting shadowed by some guys with four-inch knives up their sleeves who are ready to shank me down a back alley because they know that I stick out like a sore thumb. And I started realizing that outside of my normal context in the States, I can draw more attention and create more problems than I am solutions. So I say that my work isn't particularly stunning right like i'm doing training i'm doing legal casework i'm making sure that we're meeting the elements of the law of the crime that's mentioned in the statutes of this country but the guys i work with my nepali counterparts those guys are the real you know Batman for lack of a better word because they are stepping in to really dangerous situations and, yeah. and i told them you know at any point in time in nashville if i was in a hot situation and i was a couple times i could hit this little orange button on my radio And I'd have a 1,000 police officers and firefighters there to back me up in a second. I also had the law to back me up. But in countries like this, where the rule of law is not strictly adhered to, it's interpreted by the most powerful guy in the room. And where you've only got four other dudes who can back you up when you get into a dark alley and the brothel owners come up with their pimps who are the most well-connected paid guys in the country. And they're going to rough you up and your family up. Like, that's a whole different level of risk. Right. And and those guys really owned it and they become they became very good at what they did of maintaining cover, of blending in with the bad guys and knowing how to watch each other's backs. And and that's those are the real bad men.
0: Yeah. That's incredible. Like just the visuals that I'm getting from you saying that, like from you walking through these areas, like you said, sticking mm-hmm. out what they what they call it the great Western savior, the great white savior, what have you. Like, right. like that's not sustainable. Like And like you talked about before, getting obviously the locals involved because you're not going to be there for the rest. I'm assuming you're not going to be there for the rest of your life. So when you, when you take yourself out, how do you ensure that things are going to proceed? Well, you got to do it in a way that gets the locals involved and gives the power to them. Like you're a servant Mm -hmm. leader to these people in their own country. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that approach, obviously, you're implementing, you've learned. And it's it's just a very powerful way of leading.
1: Mm, yeah, I think it's the right way. It's the Jesus way. And it's the way I didn't want to do. You know, I wanted <laughs> to be to do kicking down the door and the hero. That's, I mean, largely why I came over here in the first place. But it's not the right way. It's not the sustainable way. And thankfully, I've been humbled enough to to learn that. And, and finally, you know, it took me about three years to really make that realization. And then I was able to start getting some traction by God's grace and moving forward.
0: That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Now I had, I had called you by, by your champion name at the beginning of the podcast, the Oak. And, um, I just wanted to jump into that real quick. I know, um, I got the name ACE at the same event from our tribe that you got the name, the Oak. Um, but I don't remember exactly how that came about. So can you, uh, explain to the audience real quick, how you got the name, the Oak?
1: Sure. Yeah. I'd love to, uh, I'm not sure if your audience or even you are familiar with the Enneagram. Is that something you're th- like a personality? A assessment little bit. Yeah.
0: yeah. I'm a little familiar with it. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, if anyone is my, my number type, there's like one through nine and I'm a three, so threes are achievers, but they're often called chameleons as well. Okay. And they like to get things done, but they like to get things done, not always because of how good it is, but often because of how good it will make them look or others will perceive them. Mm-hmm. And that's a trap that's easy for me to fall into. And as you can see, it took me three years to figure out. It's not about me out of like God says, it's not about you, man. It's about them and serve, serve. And so they picked up early on in this training and uh, as we were sharing our backgrounds and our stories, and and my, I had another name at the beginning. It was linoleum. This idea of something that looks good, right, but it rips pretty easy. It's not very deep. It's not very authentic. Yeah. And over the course of that great process uh, that, that Keith Wagner was able to put together, um, a refining process, we were able to put that behind me with some intentional tools and ways, and and engage in. Genuine, maybe that's a a repeated word, but authenticity, right? Depth, um, sturdiness, dependability, and uh, I really appreciated that, and it's something that's that stuck with me ever since that training, and and has has impacted my work, and and even led to some of the decisions that that we've made.
0: That's awesome, man. And I'm assuming, just like a dog, you've named it, and you know how to call it to get to summon it, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are what are right. like the daily? Uh, reps that you do, the daily training, the daily rituals or habits that you do to become that person?
1: Mm. One thing that I try to practice as often as possible, it's easy to forget, are moments of reflection after about everything. So after this podcast, you know, taking 30 seconds to just really sit down and contemplate what just happened there. And and what was I putting forward just to face or was I being authentic? Was I being real? Um, I try to do that after saying goodnight with my kids, after having lunch with our team at the office, uh, moments of reflection have been quite grounding for me. Uh, and, and also surrounding myself, maybe most importantly, within a community of deep, rich relationships. Um, some people call the word tribe um, that well, I call it church, right? We've got a, We've been doing a house church since 2009 uh, and three of the six families in that church. Now that those men and their wives and kids are my neighbors here in Nepal and we know each other very well. And we hold each other to a high level of accountability and and a standard to make sure that we are being, we are defeating those um, inner voices that want to make us something less than what God has intended us to be.
0: Yeah. You, you hit on something that's pretty important, community. And for somebody who's living in a foreign country and being, I wouldn't say necessarily an outsider, but you're you're a foreigner in a foreign country. how's the sense of community how's your community uh, been out there compared to your community that you had out here when you were in Indiana, Arkansas and then Tennessee?
1: You know we always had a pretty good community. as I mentioned, we chose a house church model of expressing our faith because we could live in community with one another, you know having meals together, taking care of each other. but it wasn't until living in Nepal um, that I really understood the value of it. And living in a foreign context is a pressure cooker for relationships, right? It'll, it'll either break you, it'll refine you, it'll condense you down into what really matters. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, if we get into conflict with each other, we don't have anywhere else to go. I and mean, we're the only people that look like us, speak like us, smell like us, eat like us. Like, we're, we're, this is it. It's a small nucleus. And it forces you to get past some of the petty things and and to work through hard conversations to to really, um, I don't know, invest in relational bank accounts. We do a lot of withdrawals, but we do a lot of investment as well. And now when I come back to the States, I'm actually eager to get back to South Asia because I miss the community. I miss those relationships. And I've even learned that from South Asia. I mean, community, especially family is a very different thing in this part of the world than it is back home. Um, I would argue that efficiency, productivity are what we value highest in the West. Yep. And here it's family and relationship, and it's a much slower pace of life. But we've learned to embrace that. And it's been, I think we're richer because of it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting that you say that. Um, it It seems like here in America, yeah, it's, it's that rugged individualist. It's, I can do everything, Mm -hmm. conquer the world by myself. And I, I state that in my book that that's just a fallacy. Like Mm -hmm. nobody does anything incredible in life without support of their family, their community, uh, their relationships. And um, it's, it's tough because I moved out here close to five years ago to Nashville and just to find a community out here is has been a little bit of a challenge. And when you yeah. do find people that you can trust and open up to, you know, I've I've been burned a few times myself. And that was different for me because uh, growing up in California, I had my family, my close knit friends that I cra- you know I, I crafted those friendships over decades. But then um, out here in Nashville, I feel at times I, I could feel more isolated. Than I ever have. And it sounds like in Nepal, shoot, you're at the base of the Himalayas, like Mount Everest is probably a stone's throw away. And you've it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you've found a deeper, richer community there, not only that supports you, but holds you accountable to be the best version of yourself. And it just sounds absolutely Incredible that you've found something like there, and, and my guess is when you moved to Nepal, that wasn't on the forefront of your mind.
1: Right. It, it, what, what was on the forefront of my mind was getting things done, solving problems, and and I'm I'm a huge patriot, man. I love my country. I love it even more now that I'm living outside my country. Yeah. And so I don't want to I don't want to diss on that because I don't think a lot of problems in the world would remain problems if it wasn't for a Western mindset of getting things solved. Like I love that idea. Um, but that was tempered a little bit coming here by r- realizing how much I'd undervalued and misunderstood authentic community and relationships. And man, life is so much better this way. You know, yeah. we just, I've got so much more capacity because i am surrounded by, well, I mean, even tonight we had the birthday party for a little Nepali a girl that our families helped take care of and a, one of our other daughters from the community. And there were 50 people there of, of all types. And it was just a celebration. And that's like every other week. I mean, nice. it's just great. So yeah, it's, it's good.
0: That's awesome, man. That, that's so cool to hear. Now, being the superhero that you are, what would you say are just one or two of your superpowers? I know that's, that's, oh, that's man. a very, it's a very specific question, but, um, yeah, do you shoot fireballs out of your hands? Uh, can mm. you, can you leap tall buildings or, um, if, if you had to reflect, cause it sounds like you are definitely, a, uh, you can be in an introspective person, but mm. what, what would you say are just some of your superpowers that you've had to harness or craft or that you've found, uh have worked because, uh, you've put yourself and your family in, in definitely, um, situations that most people wouldn't have put themselves in. So what, what has gotten you through this? What are some of the things that you would consider your, your superpowers?
1: Hmm. Well, two come to mind that have been mentioned. and I think they're related to each other. Um, and I think these are just innate things i have been given by God, really nothing that I've done to earn them. Uh, One would be the ability to gather people around in a a community sense, gather the right people. And even if they're not the right people at first, recognizing the gifts and strengths and values they bring to the table. And then secondarily motivating those people to utilize their gifts and get out there and get the problem solved and, and do it in such a way that's going to be a little more forward thinking than I would have done a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so find the right people, surround myself with the right people and then motivate those people to strive towards a noble goal, a noble cause. I think those are the two things. Now I've, I've got a an aspirational value um, that I'm really working hard on and, and, living in a developing country helps refine it a little bit. And we've got a, actually a rhyme we say with our kids we, it's a little bit of alliteration. We say, Parkers don't have pity parties. Parkers persevere. And so whenever we're getting in a rut, which is easy to do when the power goes out 20 times a day, right? And I, I could go on the list, but it's easy to get a pity party and say, woe is me. That's like me. No, perseverance is an aspirational value or trait that we really want to embody. And I think we live in an environment that can help foster that perseverance. Uh, but that's something we're, we're striving for.
0: That's awesome, man. Yeah, my my old mentor used to tell me, mattress if uh if you have to eat a shit sandwich eat it fast
1: yeah that's right
0: and so life is gonna life is gonna throw that stuff at you but uh i i love that and i love that rhyme too because uh it's just simple little anchors uh whether it's a Mm. physical anchor or a uh word anchor something like that that you can go back to when times get stressful or you kind of um lose sight a little bit that yeah, quick, simple, easy things that you could do. And I think something like that is super powerful.
1: Oh, it's been so helpful for us. Even I made it for the kids, but I probably use it (laughs) half the time myself.
0: Right. Right. No, that's awesome, man. That's really cool. So, um, I know we're, we're getting close on time here. However, I would like just to hear a little bit. Um, we, we talked about operation rescue children about, um, about you training, locals and, and, uh, having them bust these operations and everything, but we haven't talked uh, much about your new venture. Um, can, Mm -hmm. can you just give us uh, a little bit about, uh, what you're planning on doing, uh, what you're going to be transitioning into and, and what this whole new adventure is about?
1: Mm, I'd love to. And it just a touch base on Operation Rescue Children real quick. I I serve on the advisory board there and And they're a newer organization, but I think they're doing it the right way. They're thinking about sustainability. They're thinking about changing systems and empowering people to make a long-term difference. I tell you, training law enforcement and the people that are out in the field, that is so valuable. It's so great. Um, What I'm transitioning to, I'm transitioning to it because I feel like I've reached a moment where I need to zoom out and get on a higher level strategy. And we've done the groundwork. We've got teams in place that are trained, that are competent, that are led by locals and nationals who know what they're doing, and they're pushing casework and empowering local systems. Awesome. I kind of worked myself out of a job, which was the goal. And so now I'm stepping out of that field into a very different field. But one thing I've learned from this process is every problem that's generated in the world is driven by worldview. And if your worldview is one that devalues certain people because of their, their cast, because of their race, because of their background, because of their socioeconomic status and the crimes that you're committing against them are driven in a, a, a twisted and warped way that says you're actually helping them because you're helping them earn off or work off some previous life sin. Like that's a problem. And no matter how much justice related justice related work we do, it's not it's just it's just poking holes. Like I want to get to the heart of it. And the heart of it is how we think about our fellow human beings. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, the way I understand us is we're all made in the image of God. We're uniquely valuable. And any single person is worth more than every immaterial thing in the world, right? Every every non cognizant thing in the world. Add it together, and it doesn't equal the value of Noah, right, or Matt and i want to fight for that and so my best friend since middle school um he his wife they have six kids they are our neighbors here in nepal and he is in a very different line of work a creative field and he started in one of the hardest countries in the world to start a business he did it and a year ago he launched and and he's doing a good job he's employing guys with gainful employment and they're making some awesome work and so our hope is I'm going to help him make it, again, back to sustainability. So the goal is to create stories that just impact the developing world, particularly in Nepal, to shift worldview, to value the least of these, you know, the poorest girls and boys in the country. who They don't need to work at brick kilns. They don't need to work in a sex factory. Like they're valuable. Right. So let's shift the worldview on that. And what we're trying to do is make a sustainable model where if business is back in the States need, um, you know, website development, they need internal branding and storytelling or videos or anything. They send that to us, we make it. Um, and then a percentage of that profit goes to fund these stories to shift culture. So it's, it's a, it's a very different world than I've been in for the last, you know, my entire professional life is law enforcement, Right. but I think this is the right step. And I think it's, it's going to lead to something beautiful. I'm, I'm trusting God with it at least.
0: That's awesome. Well, you know, we, we are constantly evolving and I love what you said. I know this is not an entrepreneur podcast, but what you said, you worked yourself out of that position. And that's such mm-hmm. a powerful thing because essentially what you did is you empowered other people. Like you said, you found the right people, you empowered them, you put them in positions to win and you trained them and you essentially made yourself I wouldn't say useless, but you, in, in the course of what you were doing, you, uh, got yourself out of a job. And I think that's absolutely powerful. That's, um, a great sign of a great leader, a great superhero. Um, and honestly, man, I, I couldn't be happier for you. I couldn't be more excited about what you're, uh, what you're getting yourself into, like, I just love that you constantly push yourself. You put yourself in positions that aren't easy. You don't live a comfortable life. You don't take the uh, comfort way out. you you do the hard thing. You know, you swim upstream, you're building muscle, you're building character, you're building a legacy for not only for your family, but for everybody you come in contact with. and it's just absolutely powerful, absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I just feel completely blessed. That uh, I had met you at that event, uh, shoot, I guess it's been about a year now. And um, I'm glad we've stayed in contact. And I'm, I'm just really happy to hear uh, about everything that's going on with you in your life because you are definitely destined for great things. You're already doing great things. And I can't wait to hear more about what you have going on uh, in the uh, not so distant future and
1: beyond. Wow, brother. Hey, I I'm humbled. <laughs> I'm truly humbled um, by those words. Thank you, man. And it was a pleasure getting to meet you and train with you as well. And I love the content of this podcast. I mean, it's it's going to hopefully impact lives, and I'm excited to keep listening to it, to read your book, and to see what uh, see what comes next for you, brother.
0: Hey, man. I'm I'm just here as a placeholder. It's people like you that are going to make this podcast what it is. All I get to do is ask questions and listen to amazing stories, but uh, now, as always, man, I appreciate our time together. And um, just one more time for the listeners Operation Rescue Children, you can find more information about that at Operation Rescue Children.com. And then The Oaks New Adventure uh, is the uh, story company. And you can find more information online at storycompany.com. With that said, Adam, The Oak Parker, it's been a pleasure. It's gone way too fast, but I know we'll be talking off air and I just wish you the best of luck. Uh, I'm so blessed to have met you guys. You, Lori, I haven't met your kids yet, but I'm assuming at some point I will. Um, and shoot, man, uh, the Ultimate Warrior and I are now starting to hike tall mountains. So you might find me uh, coming yeah. into Nepal pretty soon. It, maybe not Everest yet, but I know I think six of the eight tallest mountains in the world are in Nepal. So, um, yeah, we'll give you a tour, man. Come on over. That'd be awesome, man. That would be awesome. So anyways, God bless, man. I will uh, talk to you soon. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good one.